still not asking for it. A podcast brought to you by Hope Harbor, a sexual trauma recovery center. I am your host, Elena. And today we have Mel, our producer, joining us. What up? Hey. And we have come to talk about Black Lives Matter. And so the anti-rape movement was spearheaded by Black women, um, but today our coalition, specifically in Kentucky, is led overwhelmingly by white women. We know Black folks experience sexual violence at similar rates, if not higher, um, but our agency's demographics of services do not reflect the communities that we are in. We are here to say Black Lives Matter, and as support providers, advocates for social change and ending sexual violence, we must support the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and so we also want to um, acknowledge that, um, you know, we're here to talk about this, recognizing where we are coming from. We are both white. Um, and by no means do we believe we are experts of this. Uh, by no means do we um, anticipate or encourage people to listen to this podcast as their only experience to uh, hearing about the Black Lives Matter movement and about racial tensions or racial justice in our country. We just felt as two individuals who work in anti-oppression that we need to take an intersectional approach and as soon as things started coming out this year, uh, we really wanted to look into how we could change things, not only at our organization, but with agencies throughout the state and within our coalition and what we could do to spark change. Yes, and I find it important too to note like that stating Black Lives Matter. So like, and I kind of say that with like the hashtag in mind that it shouldn't be this radical thing <laughs> to say, Black people existing um, is important and that their lives have value, but it is radical and it is a big statement. It is a big deal when um, agencies like ours or businesses do make these statements because we live in a white supremacist country that has a long history, our only history, is tied to uh, white supremacy. And so um, I feel like that's important to, to note and to recognize that that is why it is a big deal to say Black Lives Matter. That is why people get so upset when they see it or when people who disagree with it. So basically, uh, we just kind of wanted to uh, have this as our next topic for our episode because it's something that Mel and I obviously, you know, support this movement. Mel literally has her Black Lives Matter shirt on right now. And that, you know, that, that this is something we, you know, talk about with family, with friends. We really do believe in this movement and believe in the, I guess, advancement of racial diversity, but that also it's super important with connection to our work as a support agency that our community of all colors recognize that we are here to serve everyone and that we are doing the work to, to, to address those white supremacist, those racial systemic institutions that essentially Hope Harbor takes a part of. You know, but you mentioned the intersectional approach. And so um, intersectionality, which was a, a term um, coined in the 80s or early 90s by Kimberly Crenshaw, is, came from this idea that um, specifically it was acknowledging that Black women experienced both sexism and racism. It was very specific to a case, too, that was a uh, discrimination case in a, I think it was a car factory, where Black women <laughs> were being basically told that 
they weren't, they couldn't experience sexism differently than white women. Um, and then that they couldn't experience racism because uh, they had these like racial, you know, uh, anti-discriminatory policies. And so, so intersectionality really put on the map that understanding that like blind spot that people with multiple identities experience, right? So that they experience discrimination in different ways and in additional ways that kind of like overlap and like weigh down on you. And so this is a term that we really like float around a lot in our coalition, you know, and in our state and in our movement. And I think that people get it, but I, I think where we really struggle is how it actually applies to our work. And I think we know that it's an issue because while we have a certain right, like number of, um, of black people in our community of, of people of uh, Latinx heritage, like we don't always see those survivors in our doors or calling our lines. And that's kind of where we see the work needing to be done in our agencies is like, you know, putting our efforts to work, you know, instead of just like, oh, let me, let me take this training, right? Like, let me, let me tell you what intersectionality means, but struggling to really make that connection with our services. And so we battle, I feel a little bit with the system. We obviously have to work with certain other entities and other agencies. And so it's not as just us that we're representing, but we're representing the legal system. We're representing the justice system. We're working with healthcare professionals. And unfortunately, some of those places aren't safe for certain people. So especially when we're looking at it from an intersectional approach, whether that's someone that is in the queer community, whether that's Black folk, whether that is some other um, minority group that's underrepresented, underrepresented, they have fear. So whether Help Harbor can scream from the rooftops that we're intersectional, there's still work to be done getting those people into the door because then we're also going to have to work with other agencies with those clients. And so we understand those fears and we're trying to overcome them, but then we're slowly trying to just chip away at that systemic racism and those those issues that work on a higher level so that our agency can do greater work. Right. And and that kind of goes into these conversations that we've been having as staff um, and you know and as volunteer advocates the summer in, in recognizing, you know, we have intertwined our services so tightly with the justice system you know, and, and that the way that we talk about uh, sexual assault, the way we talk about people who sexually assault others, and then kind of how we look at success of, of what justice looks like, you know, is tied obviously so specifically to the criminal justice system. And so when, you know, the, the protests, the summer, um, and these conversations are being, are being had on a much larger scale, I think, than what we've seen in years before. You know, I think there's always some discussion, right? So Trayvon Martin um, was shot in 2012, right? So that's kind of when people started being like, oh, you know, at least during our our generation, you know, because um, we would have been kids, uh, although I may have not been born yet, when uh, Rodney King was um, attacked by police officers um, in LA. That was... Yeah, no, that was like 91, right? It was two. It was 92? Uh, okay. No, 90, no. It was 92. 
Because the the ninety one ninety one it may have been ninety one and the the decision of of the I think of, the court case and stuff yes. all of that came out in ninety two. That's, that's what I was gonna say. It was April 29th, ninety two. I just watched that um, documentary. <laughs> um, but um, but yes, and so like that's, so like, and that's where the hashtag started. That's where the Black Lives Matter hashtag started. It was after Trayvon Martin. Was right. It, okay. Right. And so, so that's when we really saw this as a movement, right? The Black Lives Matter movement. And, and I think, yeah, these conversations were being had, but, you know, like I felt, I felt like it wasn't really until this year that other institutions had to like acknowledge like, Hey, you are also upholding white supremacy, you know, and, and that's, and I, and I do think the pandemic had a part in it, you know, in shutting everything down, people had no choice, but to acknowledge, uh, this racial disruption, this racial racial injustices in our country now. And so um, I'm thankful that some, you know, that we have been getting more um, discussion about it. I'm seeing a lot more efforts, you know, I, I'm involved with Western Kentucky University's um, Alumni Association, you know, like a lot of other institutions are making these efforts. I'm seeing even within our coalition, right, like more explicit efforts. You know, we came out with a statement saying Black Lives Matter, we came out with statements supporting, you know, uh, Breonna Taylor, who was shot by police in her home in uh, Louisville. And which, did you see that her family just got that settlement? Yeah, first, um, I need you to pronounce it as Louisville in this podcast. Are you going to? Are you, are you going to journalist NPR this? So where, you, you know, do you know this actually like a thing that Louisville put out? That all they want to be pronounced as Louisville. You, I mean, as a native Louisvillian, which then I have to say it the correct way because there's no way to say it, Louisvillian. <laughs> but huh, huh. <laughs> it is pronounced Louisville. And so you can pronounce it however you would like. But speaking in, about in Breonna Northern Taylor, Kentucky, well, I will speak Louisville's about it. Louisville's not even considered Northern Kentucky. And the largest city in Kentucky where Breonna, Breonna Taylor was. <laughs> But yes, I saw today they issued the statement that um, that they settled with her family and and they're getting some restitution as well as some police reform, if we want to call it that. There's some changes. Well, and so this brings up something my my mom had told me a while ago. Like, if people knew how much cities um, had to pay, right, um, the families after. Uh, police violence, mm-hmm. um, like that, that that would cause more uproar, you know, because because tax dollars, right? Tax dollars for the people that care about people care right? about money. Yeah, where your tax dollars go to more than you know innocent lives um, being uh, taken by the hands of people who hold a lot of power in our societies. Um, that that would actually be like super upsetting to them, right? Like if they knew, if they really saw, mm-hmm. because cities are not forthcoming with this information. My mom's tried to like figure out she's in Nashville, you know, like how much the city is really paying, you know, to these families because they keep that under, I mean, I'm sure you can't, I'm sure it's not private, but like they, but no one's knowing to look it up. Yeah. And, um, and that that's like a huge issue. Right. Um, and, and really not, I mean, and money doesn't solve the problem. Um, I mean, millions of dollars is going to change their lives, but that doesn't change. That doesn't stop. That doesn't make it better. Right. And that doesn't stop the Metro Police Department from continuing to inflict violence into, or any department, right, uh, to mm-hmm. continue to inflict that violence to where another family doesn't have to go through what Breonna Taylor's family, you know, had to go through. 
that gets to another point about um, power and and like how that's a huge factor uh, when we're discussing addressing white supremacy when we're discussing racist systems is who has power in these um, situations spoiler alert it's always white people and so when thinking about like why you know, people are like, oh, but look at how many police officers are killed in duty, you know, whenever the conversation comes up of how many um, people, police officers shoot or injure or kill, you know, while traffic, you know, doing routine traffic stops, doing things where someone shouldn't be dying. Uh, officer, police officers, I don't believe, should be killing people anyway. But that, like, that those conversations are not the same, that you can't compare them to each other because we're talking about who has power in our system, right? Um, people who are police officers can get away with shooting and beating and killing someone in a way that people who are not police officers do not get to um, get away with or do not get to do not get away with it. There we go. To me, like looking at Breonna Taylor in particular, a lot of people were questioning the validity of it. And, you know, we're going to hopefully by the time this podcast is out, I already have an answer from the attorney general about what that looks like. As of right now that we're recording it, there has not yeah. been anything out, we won't um, breath. but it, it makes me question things because I slightly put myself in that place. You know, me and Brianna Taylor grew up in neighborhoods right near each other. Um, she went to the high school that, uh, is right next to the area that I lived in. She lives in the same zip code that I grew up in. Uh, so those things, and I never, you know, I never feared for these things when I was growing up, when I was in high school. I was never stopped for anything sketchy. Uh, I never had any of these particular run-ins that when I talked to uh, Black people, people of color that grew up in the same area as me that they dealt with. And, and I, and that's, that's where I see it. You know, I know it's in a systemic level, but I also see it on a personal level when I can just compare stories of someone who has the exact same life as me. The only difference is skin color and you can see the differences then. Right. Yeah. And I think that I, I feel like the argument too, that's like, oh, this is only in cities or this is only in particular areas, hopefully is not like a real argument people can have anymore, you know, because we've had these types of uh, police violence happen across the whole nation. But I think, yeah, your point um, is something that, you know, I know we've discussed, we're aware of, right, that people can live across the street from each other and have different experience. I mean, people could live in the same house as each other and have different experiences from, you know, uh, people in power and from law enforcement. Um, but, but that is something that like a lot of folks, a lot of white people do not understand um, because we are so like ethnocentric, you know, and like, just like, only focus on like our own experiences and if like well if I don't experience that it can't be real which is a level of like not having empathy that like I can't even get to like my mind cannot wrap around that <laughs> but looking at this affects all all careers in all different workplaces but I feel especially in like mental health areas, as well as, I guess I should just say health in general, and more like social services type areas. Because if people aren't cult culturally competent, and they are not aware of their implicit bias, these things could really be affected. So if, you know, you're seeing a therapist, and they're a white person, and you're a person of color, the way that they're going to think about your life, and they're going to 
rationalize the things that you're saying are going to be within their own reality. They're not even going to be able to think about how these things affect you differently because the culture you come from, because of where you grew up, because of how the world sees you. And so that's something that we as a workplace have tried to work on is noticing our implicit bias and noticing how, you know, we can change those to a degree. But I think that's something that a lot of people see as kind of mushy and like not quantitative type things to make money and get things done. And so it's a hard thing to push. Sorry, talking over you. Our whole agency, right? Like our whole field that we're in is viewed as mushy, you know, uh, women's work. I'm putting air quotes around that. Yeah, that people don't value, Um, you know, but it, it, but like we do hold a very um, important part in this, right? Because I think it'd be really easy for people to be like, we're not police, you know, we don't kill people you know, and not recognize how we contribute to upholding these racist systems. I mean, one, you take a look at our staff and we are predominantly white. We all identify as women. You know, uh, we, we got some LGBTQ diversity, but that's about it. You know, I mean, I, I would even say we probably all come from a similar like class background even. But anyway, you know, that like acknowledging, so on that, so on that line, right? Like, I mean, you you can't, like, we could say we're trying to hire diverse staff all you want, but like, clearly that's not happening. You know, while our volunteers, you know, have some diversity sprinkled in there, you know, like you, like clearly we're not, we're, we're, we're not doing the things we're saying we're doing. And I think it's really easy for people to be like, oh, I've tried. I tried to get the black people. But they didn't want it. But they're know? not applying. So right. we need to figure out why they're not applying. What's right. the issue? Right. Or or why do you think that their like resume doesn't look as good? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, and that's where you kind of like touched on with implicit bias. I would kind of argue there's a lot of explicit bias going mm-hmm. on um, where people use the excuse, right, of something else other than race, where it's like, oh, uh, they they went to an online college or their resume isn't formatted well, you know, things like that, that like those excuses, you know, that we make to not want to hire someone or to not take someone seriously instead of recognizing like, you know, maybe they didn't have somebody in their life to show them how to write, you know, a resume or it's like, well, you know what, their job doesn't require them to write a resume. So let's like think about that, you know, but going back to, yeah, like mental health, the mental health field altogether has not been one that has always been super great, uh, super welcoming to people of color, much less when we, you know, align ourselves with medical systems, with uh, law enforcement, the, which we know historically and presently have not always treated people of color well, um, and specifically Black people. I, d- I don't want to like misconstrue right like when I think sometimes people can say people of color to sound like more PC yeah and and I think in a lot of times like we are meaning right like people of color that aren't white people um but there are very uh specific experiences that black people have that I think is important to mention um Mm -hmm. when we're talking about those experiences right separately you know, in which I have seen and have been using uh, since I've learned about like BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color, like when we're typing that out. But anyway, but I do think, so going back to mental health, you know, to especially bring up mental health after um, Daniel Prude's um, death has um, 
been more has, has been popularized right in the media uh which was the black man who was uh killed by police in uh rochester new york the way right like that the police one i mean there's no one else to call for mental health checks in the vast majority of the country besides the police but i th- think that yeah like their their biases had to have been uh, a contributing factor to why they viewed this man as dangerous um, instead of viewing mm-hmm. him as someone who needed help. And, and I think that maybe not in those experience, in, not in that situation exactly, obviously in our work, but the same type of biases can come out whenever we're working with survivors, right? Or whenever our therapists are working with survivors. I guess important to note, Mel and I are not therapists, but that, you know, th- this idea that those stereotypes, right, that look, that come out as biases, that, um, you know, Black people are stronger, that they, um, you know, don't experience pain in the same way that white people do. That's a huge, like, misconception and stereotype that, or it's not even a stereotype because it's not true, that has been um, used, I mean, within our medical field. For- and that, and that goes back. I mean, that goes back to times where during during slavery, you know, doctors were doing crazy messed up experiments on black women to see how they would tolerate pain as if they were some different species of person who could tolerate pain differently than a white woman. Right. And so, yeah. So like when we say these systems have not served black people well, like I don't think anyone from the medical field has ever even like apologized for that. Right. Like there's still statues of the guy who's be, who's like regarded as the, um, you know, like the father of gynecology when he would perform experiments, also putting that in quotes, you know, on black women um, during that time. And so like he, that guy's still like regarded. I'm sure he's in plenty of medical books. I'm sure people talk about him and not mention the horrors that he did. And he has something named after him, like some tool. And I'm I'm speaking without knowing. I'm trying to look it up right now. But it's like they they still call that tool by his last name. Like the speculum, I think is what it is, maybe. But Sims is his name. But they still call that tool the Sims, whatever, like that, that's what people in medicine refer to it as. And like, I've seen people where they're trying to rename it by one of the women, like rename Mm -hmm. it to one of the women that had these things done to her. But obviously the medical profession is not uh, fighting to make that historical change at least. And if you would like to see his statue, you can see it in New York City because it's still there. I was, yeah, I knew it was somewhere because I knew there was like an art installation where they like put paint all over him. Yeah. Yeah, it's right on like Central Park. God, which if if anyone's ever had a pelvic exam performed with a speculum, you know a man came up with that. That that was not someone who had a vagina came up, did not come up with that. I was also going to mention uh, Henrietta Lacks, which is is which is was a, a black woman who in the 1950s her cells were taken uh, from her body uh, without her consent. She had, uh, she had died of cervical cancer. And um, ha- have you heard about her? Have you heard about this story? Yes. Okay. Cause I had only, I had only recently learned about this. But yes. Yeah, so the doctors took her cells. They realized she had these um, 
essentially like supreme cells. Um, and literally her cells today have still like are still making like impact of of cures for all different types of um, of illnesses of I mean working with like cancer I mean like huge medical discovery right she and, at least gets some recognition though because I know they call them like HeLa cells for her because um, that's how they tested radiation I know that yeah. But it's not much. It's not much recognition. No. I think her family had to fight. I don't even know what, you know. I don't even know like what the if if they ever even got a settlement. But a huge issue, which then I find to be so interesting, right? Like that for hundreds of years, and I think people still today, right, believe that. Well, I know people will still believe this today. White supremacists um, that white people have this like superior body, yet they literally used a black woman's cells and and still today use her cells to you know to cure illnesses and for all these medical discoveries without acknowledging or or while you know also stating that it's white people who have this superior body it's just and there's if you want more information about henrietta Lacks, there's a movie that uh oprah did I think it was like on HBO. I'm pretty sure it probably should be easy to find. And it is called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. It was in like 2016, 2017. Uh, but that's where I learned about it. I had I had done some research um, on Sims and kind of uh, ran into that, the story of Henrietta Lacks and, and watched that movie. Oh, yeah. It is a movie, but it seems pretty factual. It's based on a, a biography about her life. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Renee Elise Goldsberry is in it. We are able to connect Hamilton to this How podcast. How did I not realize that? We are now able to mention Hamilton. Okay. Um, but yeah, how funny. I don't know who she plays. And um, I don't know who a Renee Elise Goldsberry plays in, uh, Hen- in The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. <sighs> yeah. I mean, which... And again, I think like we have to, we have to do more than just talk about it, which I know is literally what we're doing oh, on this she podcast. she plays Henrietta. Oh, shut it's up. Since I've watched this, I'm watching this tonight. Okay. Oprah I mean, doesn't play Henrietta Lax, or maybe when she's no. younger. Oprah plays Deborah Lax. I bet oh. you she dies early, so it's really her mom fighting for her stuff, and that's oh. why she's the lead. Okay, okay. Because, I mean, it's, uh, she died when she was in her 30s, so I was like, that makes... Oprah, you know, not eligible for that part. Yeah. So while we're like literally just talking about it on this podcast, I think as an agency and as a coalition and as anyone who, any individuals who advocate for social change and especially, I mean, specifically in our work too, of ending sexual violence, we have to actually do the legwork of separating ourselves to some degree or adding other services um, or doing more than just simply, you know, saying kind of in private, oh yeah, you know, we know these systems uphold um, white supremacy. We know these are, you know, systems that are part of systemic racism, you know, whatever the terminology is, but actually do more to address it and to dismantle it. You know, it was um, Ibram X. Kendi, who, you know, it said, like, it's not enough to be not racist, you have to be anti-racist. That if we actually want to see, you know, this being done, we really do have to do that work. You know, and and, and I do want to point out as well, like, 
because Mel and I went back and forth, like, we want to talk about this, but we need to somehow mention, like, we're just white, we're, we're just some white girls, you know, like, by no means are we experts, or do we view ourselves as experts, experts, and really, I've gone back and forth with that battle on a bunch of different things, right, like, of, of, of providing trainings on intersectionality, by no means would I ever want to take the job or the role of, of a Black woman or someone who is more specifically um, affected by this that could benefit it, benefit from it, right, by like a paid position, you know, but I do think it's also important to note that white people have to do this work. It's white people's fault <laughs> that racism exists. Yeah. So I was listening to the podcast Code Switch, shout out to NPR, um, and they had an uh, episode about race and friendship for the most part. And they discussed uh, college students and how that's kind of like college is this mixing pot of that's the easiest way for people to meet people that are not from their culture. And so it was talking about like 75% of both black and white people wanted to meet people of other colors. Like that was what their thing was. They wanted to make friends of people with other races. But the issue came down to when white folks in college wanted to go out and make friends with a black person. They just wanted to sit around and like talk and hang out, have a beer, whatever. And when black people wanted to do it in a more structured environment first, and they wanted to meet people and kind of feel them out to see like what their thoughts were on race. And so that really hit hard for me because you see that that's something they have to think about automatically Whereas white people are privileges, we, we can automatically make friends with people without having to think about these things. Whereas a, a black person going into college before they make friends with a white person wants to know their views on race so they can see if they feel safe with them. And that hit me at such a core because it shows that we don't see it as our problem. Mm -hmm. it's white supremacy. So obviously it's our problem more than anyone else's. And I feel like it can only be dismantled with white people helping, you know, with the, the advocacy of it um, and being allied with it. And so that was just one that, that hit me to my core because it's something that I realized in myself, but I think, you know, it's something that we don't, when we don't see the other side of things, we don't, a lot of people, as soon as race is brought up, is why do you have to get political? Why do we have to talk about politics? And it's not even realized that that's a privilege to say, I don't want to talk about race. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Right, because we get to separate ourselves from it. And the tip, and the only time we have to talk about it, um, we as white people have to talk about it, right, is is if pe if black people or if other people of color are around. Um, and that's what white that's what white privilege is, right? Like it's ugh, kills me when people like try to act like it doesn't exist. They're just choosing not to understand it. But, but yes, that idea, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we see it in, in so many parts of our society. You can watch a scripted TV show. You can watch a reality TV show. And there's always the trope of the, the minority, whether that's a black person, or you can even do it as like the gay friend. And sometimes you can even do it as the girl figure. Yes, I'm referencing Big Brother to a degree, but not completely. <laughs> <laughs> We're both Big Brother nerds, so like, y'all can we, go ahead and laugh. Are we making, but, are you, so we've made Hamilton and Big Brother into yeah, the podcast. Okay. Yeah, but you can see it on anything. Like, for instance, in children's shows, if there's a, if there's a child in the group or a character in the group, their personality is seen as 
the black character, but like the girl, like you look like Paw Patrol. There's one girl dog and her entire personality is she's a girl, you know? And so you think about it on like reality shows or even scripted shows, the white people can be the nerd, the jock, the whatever, you know, they all have their little stereotype, but then they bring on like the one black person and their entire reality of who they are on the show is the black person. And it's so messed up and it's messed up for so many different groups in that way because they're pushed into this box of they have to represent as one person their entire race, which is just ridiculous. Right. And, and I think too, like, I mean, that, that really contributes to our exposure of different races. I mean, it, 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 it contributes to the exposure of the individuals who have that identity, right? Like if the only person, the only representation you have is this one box, right? You know, or the only representation you have of, of the successful person of your race um, or gender, but we'll, we'll say with race since that's our topic today, you know, is, are these few things that really does affect your self-worth, you know, and like really where you're going to go on, you know, as an adult and where you form your identity and where you're going to fit in, you know? And so, you know, going back to white people being a part of ending white supremacy, uh, while I definitely think we have to be a part of it, I, I don't want to imply that I think we have to necessarily lead it um, or, or even like do it alone, right? Like I want, I want it to be known like that we're going to value or that we need to, everyone needs to value black experiences. Um, we need to listen to that and we need to believe it and like take from it, you know, cause I think that, you know, we, you, there, there's always more to learn, right? Like, you know, we've, we've read the cool texts, you know, the, the books that we should read to dismantle white supremacy, you know, but by no means are we experts in that we have to value, right? Those experiences that black folks have. I feel like it's our job almost to kind of give them the step up that society hasn't given them. So, you know, requesting that whether it be history or books or music or whatever it may be, like like asking the powers that be, you know, white men, um, to give them that respect. So getting teachers who are going to teach actual history and not just the white history that we that we got taught when we were little, and and being able to to teach both sides of things, and not just in the month of February, people requesting certain books by black authors, so that we're we're getting them on the shelves at bookstores like we wouldn't normally. Uh, and so I think that's a lot of it is we're just not getting the visibility because we're not standing up and in asking for it. Mm-hmm. And you know we're seeing all these new titles come out that a lot of people had never seen. Um, and they're flying off the shelves like never before. And I love that. But like, when does it stop? So it's like, I feel like we have to continue to ask and say, we want to continue to hear these black voices. And if we're not going to ask for it, then, you know, it may fall and they might not be able to have their voices heard. So I almost feel like we have to give them that step up. And we have to hold each other accountable, right? Like as white mm-hmm. people, you know, to where we don't just sit in comfort whenever we don't have to talk about race, right? Which I don't think really, and I'm not trying to be like, oh, we're great, we're great white people. But you know, that that we're not going to, you know, ignore that racist comment that someone says. We're not going to ignore, you know, um, the, the, the biases that come out, you know, whenever a, 
uh, coworker, right? Like says, oh, I don't know if they're, you know, appropriate for services, or I don't know if I'm the best person to work with them, you know, to where it's like, let's, let's, let's look at that closer and let's talk about why. And could this be the reason why, you know, because especially in spaces, right, where, where we're predominantly white, we have to um, hold each other accountable um, and we have to start those conversations and follow through with those. And those conversations aren't easy. And so Elaine is not saying that at all, that those conversations are easy, uh, especially where we live in South Central Kentucky. These conversations aren't happening all the time. Um, so when you are a person that's bringing up these conversations, sometimes it's pushed back on you as you're the bad guy for bringing these conversations up, whether that be with you know, coworkers, family, friends, whatever it may be, you know, relationships all over the country, I'm sure, are being tested as these uh, issues are brought up and people are really standing up for what they believe in and, and speaking their truth. And it, it's slightly beautiful to see, but it's also kind of heartbreaking. But I love seeing like the videos of like these 16 year olds, like teaching their parents what being an anti-racist is and how they can do it. But it's difficult. It's difficult to stand up to the people that you respect and you love that surround you and do something about it. But I feel like that as a white person is, is the biggest thing that I can do is yeah. like we speak have. out for it. We have to. Sorry, I just got a CNN update about um, uh, like CNN Rihanna. tags for Louisville. It hasn't been announced, but they're officially there like filming on site, like all the stuff closed and how much is closed. And I'm like, it's happening today. I know it's going to happen today. Uh, I was terrified it was going to happen during the podcast. I heard Thursday. I heard thir- like for some, but then like, I've also heard that Daniel Cameron was like, I'm not going to, he hasn't like said when he's going to announce it, but it's like, wow. Okay. Louisville, you can close down a whole city for like a week, but you can't bring charges against officers. Like where's your efforts being, you know, applied here. I mean, being there on Monday was freaky. Like, sorry, this is so off topic, but it was like ghost town. You might I mean, be- like, sorry, I, I frequent, I frequented downtown a lot. Right. Like if you all were spending, I mean, just a fraction, right, of much of, of this effort on ensuring that, but really, honestly, I don't feel that way because I, I mean, I personally, so speaking personally as Elena, not as Hope Harbor stands, that I do not believe you can fix a system that was created from the very beginning to harm, to persecute people of or black people. I'm not going to say people of color, specifically black people, just like our country, you know, like our constitution was created from the very beginning to disenfranchise everyone except for white men or white male, like white men who owned land, right? White Mm -hmm. affluent men. And so going back and like slapping band-aids on these things, like, right? Like, I mean, because when we talk about like what police reform looks like, it's always training. Like, oh, let's give them training. It's been announced, announcement today at 1.30 p.m. Oh my gosh. 12.30 our time. Are we going? Listen, if it's not right, like if they do nothing, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to stop myself from getting in the car. Yeah. I, th- I mean, it's totally different when it's your hometown, right? And and that's and the, that's an experience I don't have. Like Louisville is the closest um, to me. And, and I will say for a high profile, right, you know, because I know Nashville has, you know, has their police officers have definitely killed black men. 
but I didn't grow up in Nashville, right? I grew up outside of Nashville. I'm sure it's happened in Bowling Green and it's not gotten the attention um, that this has. And and that's different, right? Like it's a lot more difficult to be the first one to start a protest. It's a lot easier to be a part of a community, right? When everyone, when, when you're being joined by hundreds, thousands of people, there is something powerful and energizing, you know, about that. And so I think for you to have this response is appropriate. Honestly, if you didn't, I'd be like, ugh. I mean, one part of it is just, I'm just sick to my stomach. Like, yes, I was fired up about the stuff with, you know, Trayvon Martin. I, I've kind of been there, you know, for the past, how, how many years has it been? That was Six? 2012. That was 2012. So eight. So I've, I've been there. Um, and, and George Floyd, you know, pissed me off. But really, honestly, I think that's what it was. The changing point for me was I just drew so many parallels to myself in Breonna Taylor's life. You know, we are similar in age. I'm a little bit older than her. We grew up in the same neighborhoods. The school that I would have been districted for if I lived two streets over was the high school she went to. The Like, I'm Facebook friends with her friends. Like, we know the same people. Like, she is me, but as a Black woman. Like, we experienced a lot of the same things, but then outrageously different things. And so I guess that's where it gets to me. Like when I'm looking at the map of where her apartment is, it's like, I had friends that live in that apartment. It's like, I know these people, like, I don't know. It's, it just seems so like foreign and alien, I guess, you know, these are things that happen in other places. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it always happens near you and it always happens around you, but like, but there is, it does do something in our brain of how we rationalize, I think maybe I mean, for people who care about these issues, I think it's right. Be like, oh, that's more difficult for me to travel to Washington, D.C. for, you know, that March. It's a lot more difficult, Mm -hmm. right, to go to New York if you live in Kentucky. So there's a barrier. There's like the barriers of of excuses almost, right? Like, oh, I can make all these excuses, you know, or, or maybe think it's not our place, right? Oh, that's not my place. And when that is your hometown, it's like who else is to stand up for your hometown if it's not for the people who grew up there who lived there Mm -hmm. you know and so yeah like like what an hour and a half drive you know is like is very doable like that's not like that's not a huge excuse and and there's a lot of people I know in Louisville that are on the opposite side of things I grew up with a lot of friends that have parents of law enforcement heck a lot of people that I know heck heck a lot of people that I know that I grew up with are, are police officers with LMPD now and, and I have this weird thing of knowing that they are not these people, but that the system is still crooked. And it's like, you know, I see them posting on Facebook or their significant other posting and like scared for their life, which I hate. But that's, that is a choice, right? Like that's the difference right. between. And I get that. Yeah. And I see that, but it's still like, I don't, I, I don't want anyone to be hurt or, or to die. But then at the same time, it's like, like y'all care about like keeping a bare nose pizza open or the freaking KFC yum center or whatever. And we can name the largest building in Louisville after a black man, but we can't stand up for him when he was oppressed. No. Yeah, no. Well, because it's a lot. I mean, same thing with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Right. Like he's viewed much differently today, much more positively today than he was back then, because it's a lot easier to praise someone who isn't alive anymore and that's so upsetting that's so messed up and all these people saying if he was if he was here today 
he wouldn't be for this. And I'm like, well, really? Oh, talking about because Martin Luther King Jr.? The person who led our march in Bowling Green was someone who marched the Selma Bridge with him. Right, so please yeah. please tell me that while his kids are saying, are standing up for Black Lives Matter right now, and the people that he was the closest to that are still alive, that fought the fight with him, are the people that are still saying no and are still standing up. Like the entire concept of good trouble, but then all of these Karens out there are saying that I lived in the 60s. Martin Luther King Jr. was not about this. And I just want to be like, bullshit. I remember uh, there was someone Sorry, I'm who, getting real fired up. Yeah, there's someone who like retweeted Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, you know, and was like, and, and they were like, no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't have been for this. And it was like, are you really mansplaining to Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter? Like, I mean, like, what white the dad man- would think? Yeah, white mansplaining was just like bizarre. I mean, well, it's not bizarre. It's like totally on brand, you know, but, but when it comes to, and, and I will say again, you're speaking from a point, right? Like, I don't know these LMPD officers or their families, but like, if you are a part of a system that you claim to like, like you know, like if we're going to be like, oh, there's a few bad apples, right? Like no one else gets away with that. Uh, besides, besides groups that are led by white men, right? So, you know, if you're, if you're against politics, because there's a few bad apples, you know, right? Like they get away with it. Um, I think the medical field doctors get away with it, you know, but like, if you truly believe there's only a, you know, oh, there's some bad, but like, I'm, it's not me. It's not me, but like, you're subscribing to that. And I think like me as an individual, like I cannot wrap my mind around that type of like separation, because even within Hope Harbor, right, any, if within any of the agencies or any community groups that I'm a part of, if I believe something is wrong, if I believe something does not, fun, like, does not agree with my values, you know, um, that are very important to treating people well, like, I'm not going to stand for it. And, and I recognize that's probably me being a three and not everybody's going to be like that. But I believe there's no, like, you are, you are subject to just as much critique right? Like if you're a part of a group that is okay with this behavior. And at this point, you can, like, no one could argue that law enforcement is okay, is not okay with this at this point, right? Like mm-hmm. we will, like, it is very clear that law enforcement as a whole across our country is okay with this treatment and they're fighting for it, right? Like they're fighting mm-hmm. to never be held accountable, like acting as if they cannot, I mean, I think there's some states, right, that have laws, because uh, their, you know, police unions have fought for these laws to say that they can't, they couldn't be charged for, for killing somebody while on duty, you know, like that they get to say, oh, I was feared, you know, like have this like blanket term of, well, I feared for my life, mm-hmm. you know, as if like police lives are more important than anyone else, you know, but then like that, that self-defense doesn't work right? For in, in our country, for other folks, you know, there's plenty of people. And I think specifically black women, black and brown women that are incarcerated right now, right at this moment, because they defended themselves against their perpetrator, well, against and, their abuser. And I think it's interesting because, you know, we oftentimes kind of group police officers and military personnel in kind of the same categories. But if a soldier was to shoot at a medic, and we'll say like in war, I don't know what the term is, in, in military time, whatever. If if a soldier was to shoot at a medic that was applying medical services to a wounded person, that goes against everything. Like that soldier could be 
kicked out of the military, like that is a, that is a punishable offense. So why is it that a police officer can do that and it's not held to the same regard? And, you know, that's, that's opening a whole can of worms of the military as well, which I'm not yeah. trying to say, but it's like, why so many people like retire or get out of the military and go into police law enforcement, which is a problem. But, <laughs> right. But at the same time, like the standards there are different as well. You know, like here are things that are seen from the Geneva convention as against it. But then the United States uses it. Like literally other countries are not selling us the things to make tear gas, but which they could make money off of us for because they see the United States as being so wrong for tear gassing their own citizens. Like it is against the Geneva Convention to tear gas other countries, other soldiers who signed up to be there, but we're going to tear gas civilians. Like that- For protesting, for something that is Freaking baffles me. Yeah. Like baffles me. Which is, yeah, because I mean, that's our first, one of our first amendment rights, right? Like everyone likes to point out, oh, freedom of speech, which they never pointed out in the way that it actually is meant. Um, But really our constitution- I, I personally believe our constitutions are relevant at this point. Uh, I do want to say this. I want to say this too, because um, you talked about, you know, the system and all of this. And while I do know people that are personally law enforcement officers in Louisville as well as other places, and I do think that, you know, each person's intentions are different. You know, I think people do go into law enforcement with great intentions of, I want to change the system maybe, you know, like they do see the system and they want to change it, but then there has to be a point and I feel like the point is 2020, where it's like, now do you not see it? Do you not see these fundamental wrongs that by being a part of it, you can't change it? Like, you're not going to go, gosh, I don't want to make this this metaphor, but I almost have to. You aren't going to join the KKK and turn them into not being racist, you know? And so, but I think that is, that is a very on point metaphor. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds. Or comparison, comparison. It is, you know, but I want to reference I want to reference John Mattingly, who um, is one of the police officers that was in the Breonna Taylor shooting, and he sent an email to all of LMPD. I don't know if you've seen this yet. I haven't um, read it, he, but he yeah. stands firmly behind it. He has been interviewed about it. He's like, yeah, I sent it. Yeah, I did these things. There is a content warning of it. It is it is a lot. And, and the problem with me is almost like that he stands behind it. And I understand the, the camaraderie of law enforcement officers together. But do you know? It, uh, <laughs> do to you a degree. Really? I mean, I feel like if you're going to go in and risk your lives, you have to have a somewhat camaraderie with other people in the same way that like firefighters would. Right. But, but like it becomes an issue then because then nobody stands up. And it becomes see, so like, much like a, a us versus them. And, and you can't have both, right? You can't be like, oh, only some people are bad, but I'm not bad. You know, while yeah. also saying, oh, there's a blue line that we won't cross, blah, blah, or whatever yeah. their phrase is. You know, but, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. I just want to highlight some of the very problematic things in this letter. One of them, we as a police do not care if you are black, white, Hispanic, Asian, what you identify as dot, dot, dot this week. So you care all the other times? It literally says we as a police do not care if you are black, white, Hispanic, Asian, what you identify as this week. We aren't better than anyone. This is not an us against society, but it is good versus evil. So you're saying as a police officer, you are good and everyone that you are against is evil because that doesn't like that in its sense, like you are playing God. Yeah. 
there's another part. This is the part that I was trying to get to, but I got distracted because that part makes me annoyed. But it talks about, at one point, it talks about this is what we learned. Like, this is... I feel like this letter just further, like, solidifies all of the critique and all of the issues that we're trying to make that, like, surrounds law enforcement and this idea that they believe them as a community is, like, on this... Yes, right, and and that could be compared to the black community, or or like people skin color could be compared to what job you've chosen, which exists yeah. in no other group except for law enforcement. Yeah. Okay. And this is the part. You do not deserve to be in this position, the position that allows thugs to oh, get gosh. in your face and yell, curse, and degrade you, throw bricks and bottles and urine on you, and expect you to do nothing. By the way, side note. I have been to the protests. I have seen none of this. There have been a few random people that have thrown things like bottles. I've never known them to be full of urine and or rocks or something like that. And as soon as that protester does that, the crowd of protesters shuts that person down because they don't want to be known for doing these things. But that doesn't fit their narrative, right? Like that right. doesn't fit the law enforcement narrative. Right. This is the part that I that I wanted to um, to go on though. It goes against everything we were taught in the academy. The position that if you make a mistake during one of the most stressful times in your career, the department and the FBI, who aren't actual cops and would piss their pants if they had to hold that line, go after you for civil rights violations. You as police officers, civil rights mean nothing, but the criminal has total autonomy. Which we know so not to be true. In anyway. itself saying that their civil rights matter more than the person that they're against. And they're automatically assuming anyone that they're against is a criminal and is devaluing the other person's life because they're a criminal. Mm -hmm. But like, that's how they're trained to be. That is, I mean, they said it. Like We're taught in the academy. This is, it goes against everything we're taught in the academy. There's also a part of it, this is going to really get you going because this is by far the worst part. Do what you need to do to go home to your family. Just do it with dignity and make sure you can justify your actions because everything down there is recorded. What? So don't, don't justify your actions or do it with dignity because you're a decent human being. Do it because everything's being recorded and you don't want to end up like him, I guess. Yeah. Uh... And do I want everyone to go home at night to their families? Yes. I don't want any children you know, to lose a parent because of all of this. But at the same time, like, there are parents that are dying every day because of the color of their skin. Yeah. I also have just gotten, like, there were points, and you know me, my type eightness does not cry, but there were certain points earlier we were talking, I was, like, getting tears in my eyes because I've gotten just so pissed off about this. And, I mean, there's a sense of helplessness, too, right? Like, you know, and I, I really do go, like, back and forth between, like, yes, let's, let's take this fire. Let's make change, you know, but I also like, if I don't see change really fast, I, which never happens, right? Like I get very discouraged, yeah. you know, and, and being like, you know, like, is this, is this really worth it? You know, and I get those thoughts of, oh, move to an, another country, but I will say, I mean, there is no ideal country. There is no ideal city in, you know, in, in America where people aren't being, treated negatively or treated badly. New Zealand, I think I need to do more research on New Zealand, but I think they treat their indigenous people really well. <laughs> you know, but like, are there black people in New Zealand? I don't know. That's something I don't really know about. But like, really, 
law enforcement, and, and I will say, and I can't remember if this, if I was, if I'd mentioned this in our last episode, uh, when I, I, had, I went through the Bowling Green uh, Citizens Police Academy, mm-hmm. which solidified all of the feelings I had about law enforcement already. And, and so I, I do feel like I am able to speak at, from a certain point, right? Have I been through their academy that they go through? No. But do I know that uh, my hairdresser went to school longer to be certified to do hair than law enforcement does to become a law enforcement officer? Yes. They do. Just about mm-hmm. every other profession requires more training mm-hmm. than law enforcement does. So if we're going to talk about training, like let's, you know, look at that, you know, but that the system is really created. And I think that his letter really like, right, like makes no argument against this, that that entire system of law enforcement is created to empower them to, to benefit a certain group they are not there to protect our community as a whole and they never have been that has never been the the idea of law enforcement in america and so even if there is a law enforcement agency that hasn't killed a black person on camera yet like that does i do not believe that means they operate separately i will say the warren county sheriff you know in bowling green and warren well warren, bowling green is in warren county you know, his, his efforts, I think, do show something. Who now, are we speaking about? Oh, uh, Bre- yeah. Brett yeah, Hightower? Yeah, okay. Brett Hightower. Yeah, uh, Brett Hightower. While I do think his efforts are something to be noted, do I mm-hmm. think he's this, like, do I think that Warren County Sheriff's Department is something separate than in any other department? No. Like, I, like, I do think that, like, him, you know, saying like him holding the sign Black Lives Matter and taking a photo with it is a big deal. Like, do we see that? Like, would I have expected that in Bowling Green? No. But does that well, mean not to mention that both departments, uh, BGPD and Warren County Sheriff's like marched in demonstrations for Black Lives Matter is talking with the community. Like, are we better off? Yes. But we also haven't had any high profile cases that have been brought about that may. Right question that and and do we think that those few acts right those two those simple acts of of leading you know the the protest uh, because I saw plenty of comments that were like oh you're protesting the right way you know and like I don't like that but that yeah like holding that sign these little videos he's been doing him speaking um at the events I mean Bowling Green Police Department electing I don't know if that's the right word but a uh, a black man right to lead the department like do I think those things alone mean that Bowling Green or that Warren County will never have this happen. No, I don't Mm -hmm. think it is. And I will say in that police academy that I attended, uh, or the Citizens Police Academy, I should state, people thought like I was becoming a police officer. And I was like, no, you know, that it, it became very clear the who was a trainer, right? Who was higher up, um, who was a captain or, you know, the other, I should know these terms. I actually wrote it down wherever my notes are, but, but like people who were higher up the way that they spoke to us, the way that they, um, you know, stated, like, I mean, I remember Casey is his name, his last name, you know, had stated, like, I do not believe people who come from military make great officers. Like their mindset is so different. Like Marines mindset is so different than what we're doing as police officers that it almost, it's more work to, um, to untrain them. Yes. To undo that. Basically all they, all they can do well is, and then this this is where I was like, Oh, you went downhill. He said, what they can do really well is shoot is, um, aim and shoot a gun. And it was like, 
well, if that's what you think a police officer is, you know, like that's a problem, right? Like, you know, but then you would have someone, you know, an officer who was a, you know, who did traffic stops, who, uh, you know, was out on the field, you know, and then to hear the way they talked about the community was completely different. And that was very apparent to me. I mean, I was it apparent to other people in the room, probably not as much, because I think I went coming from a different place than most people in that room did. But like, it was very obvious, right? Like that just because you have leaders who look a certain way or leaders who talk a certain way, now does that help? Does that benefit? Yes, but that does not fix the problem. So, you know? so what you're, what I'm, what I'm gathering was not what I expected, to be honest. I thought you were going to say like how they were training them was a certain way. Oh, which I but can it, talk about that too. <laughs> it almost, it almost sounds like that. And this is only speaking about this particular department that, you know, the trainer is wanting to see a change, but then they aren't continuing to look at the officers and do ongoing trainings is almost what it sounds like. Cause obviously, you know, and, and I don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to be in law enforcement and, and to day to day go in and, and see certain behaviors and not classify certain people. It creates bias in, in the work that they do in the field where they are interacting with the same people and then they start to see these people as not people and only as criminals. And, and I don't know what that's like. And so I don't want to say that, oh, I do it and I do it so differently, but they're not coming from a trauma informed approach. They're not seeing anyone with any type of um, mental illness as someone that could be helped instead of detained. And I will say my last thoughts, I feel like that I have on this matter right now is that when it comes to Black Lives Matter, I don't think law enforcement is the only issue. I don't think, right, like I don't think that's like all we're discussing or all the movement as a whole is trying to accomplish. But I will say why law enforcement is an issue is because they have power. And that is like the root of oppression, right, and the root of racism, sexism, you know, transphobia, anti-gay efforts is that like it's who has power and if those who are in power are committing this violence and are never held accountable change will never be made so pretty much like our current administration yes yes thank you for hanging with us and remember we're still not asking for it and black trans lives matter this podcast has been brought to you by Hope Harbor, a sexual trauma recovery center located in South Central Kentucky. Special thanks to Girl Tones for our intro. Listen to the rest of their song, Can't Pause, and others wherever you stream or buy music.